Mission Log Supplemental Number 23, the one with Marina Sirtis. Okay, so two things that we were talking about when you came in, two very different topics, but, but both kind of maybe important and hot button. One was about the end of the run of Next Gen. Uh-huh. And you were talking about going into the convention world and all this stuff, and you were told that you had a horrible agent because you could have gotten <laughs> anything that you wanted. Go back to that. I, I would, how, how did that work? Well, that worked. I mean, basically, I changed agents a lot during the series. Um, it was it was a really dumb thing to do, actually, because uh, they're pretty much all the same. But, yeah, they're all a bunch of loot. They're all a bunch of toe rags, as we say in my country. Um, no, actually, my agents right now I quite like. But in the past, um, a lot of agents are more concerned about earning their percentage than actually furthering your career. Uh, but I was sitting in the lounge, uh, the first class lounge at LAX with Rick Berman going to one of our premieres, which was probably first contact in London. And um, he, he informed me that there was a time that I could have asked for anything um, contract wise and I would have got it, which is kind of mean to tell me that after the fact. Um, but I suppose he was working, you know, he was, he was on the other side. He was a suit and I was just a lowly actor, and, of course, the suits are trying to save as much money as possible so that um, the studio makes the most money. I, I, I suppose that's the way it goes. Um, but I was a little miffed. I thought, you know what, you could have been a little bit more on my side at the time, maybe. So then the other thing that we were talking about was social media. I didn't right. realize that you were on Twitter. Yeah, I, I'm taking a little break from social media right now because... Um, there's a lot of infighting amongst my fans, which uh, upset me. And so being as I'm the common denominator, I decided to take myself out of the equation and take a little break from social media right now and just basically do what other actors do, which is promote their projects. Um, I try to do something a little more. I try to uh, have a relationship with my fans. Um, there was a kind of a core group that I called my Parsi, which was basically women, actually, which amazed me that such a big piece of my fan base is women, being as I was like the sex symbol, I suppose, of TNG. Um, but uh, it, it did backfire because, um, I don't know, I think they, uh, some people get jealous of your relationship with other people or personalities clash or whatever it is. But anyway... Um, the experiment failed miserably, so when I do go back on social media, it will be more to the, you know, this is what I'm doing, this is where I'll be, posting nice pictures. Um, but I was very political in the past, and again, and that I might continue to do because I, I don't care about the hate that comes my way when I do get political. Well, what do you think the thing is there? It, it, you can look at social media and say the problem is the, the anonymity of everybody having the same voice, everybody having the same accessibility on the internet, and then this opens up this this kind of um, this kind of anonymity that says it is okay to get into arguments to tear people down, but then you're coming at this as somebody who is very well known mm-hmm. and somebody who quite the opposite. Maybe people feel um, 
an inappropriate kind of, of closeness, like a friendship or an intimacy with, simply because you were on TV for so long and still on TV through BBC whatever America media America every day. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, is that just kind of an ugly combination, that it, it's that intimacy but then coupled with this strange barrier that is created by the Internet, this anonymity created by the Internet? Um. Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, I would never, ever had have gone on social media because I'm a total Luddite, which is kind of weird to say that sitting in Rod Roddenberry's house. Um, <laughs> but I am a total Luddite. I hate technology. I hate what it's doing to society. Um, but I, I got a recurring role on NCIS, and my publicist insisted that I have a Twitter account mm. um, and said, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm starting one for you. And you can either run it yourself or I will run it. And I went, well, if it's going to be there, I'm going to run my own Twitter account. I don't want somebody I don't, you know, somebody else running it. So that's how it happened. I have to admit, I'm regretting it madly now. Um, <laughs> because I, I'm a very private person. I really don't want people to know what's, you know, what's going on in my personal life. And I just feel we're, we're just creating this generation of total narcissists. That they care, they think we care what they're doing twenty four seven. Well, I don't care what I'm doing twenty four seven, let alone what they're doing twenty four seven. I find it all very, very distasteful. Actually, I really do. Well, but there's something about that, though. You, you said that you do like to get political, mm. whether it's in a forum like that when you're online or Star Trek conventions. You you have this forum where you're on stage. Right. People are there paying to see you and hear what you have to say. And you were coming from a show that has this history of having a social voice, having a political voice. So I wonder, like, are you surprised then that, that people would be argumentative in, in, uh, oh, in a I, situation no, like no, that? No, I don't or, mind people yeah. being argumentative. Mm -hmm. um, listen, I'm all, I'm all for a good debate. They just, but they get ugly and mean and name call, mm -hmm. you know, and that isn't a debate. That's, that's high school. Yeah. You know, um, and this is what I find about the whole social media thing. It gives people cowards sitting behind their computer screens um, the opportunity to be vicious and and um, really nasty and unethical to people they don't know. Listen, like I, I that's the part of, of Twitter that I like. I do like to get into the social debate, but you know. As soon as I say anything, the first thing that comes up is go back to where you came from, Ugh. which is, you know, so pathetic because yeah. I actually am an American citizen now. Yeah. And in a couple of years, I will have lived longer in America than I lived in England. So um, I, just, I just find that it brings out the worst in people. And we're bad enough as it is without having a mirror held up to how bad we are. I don't know. I, I, not to argue. I don't know that it brings out the worst in people. I think it gives the worst people a, a platform. And that's 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 kind of a uh, kind of a different thing. I maybe I think or I hope because I mean because yeah. maybe that is a not everybody turns it. into a troll. That's true. So yeah, maybe well. that is a better way of putting it. That the, the the people who are that way inclined it gives them an avenue to um, express their hideousness. Yeah, maybe even a megaphone, especially. And it's it's the problem too. Or and I I don't want to talk bad about it because I make my living as a podcaster. I make right. my living online, right. so I can't. You know, I don't want to say, well, the problem with the internet is, but 
I mean, there, there's also sort of this gotcha mentality. So I'm, you know, dumb guy A who works at, you know, some convenience store or a pizza counter or whatever. I'm, I'm, I am not high up in the social ladder, let's say. And I say something incredibly dumb. And then somebody picks up on the incredible dumb thing I said and then magnifies it. And so then we get this like a twofer of hate where, first of all, everybody's going to hear the bad thing that I said. And then we're all going to pounce on me, you know, like, like, like carrion. Because well, yeah. because but then we get to stand there and go, oh, look how terrible he is. He's terrible. Look at how terrible he is. And so it's like it, it, the whole thing certainly can get ugly. At the same time, I've got guns that I've never physically seen because, I mean, it, it, it does at the same time open up this whole new avenue to uh, groups of people that you might never even come across. Yeah, um, I'm not convinced that – that, um, listen, I think the Internet is great for getting information, for looking things up. For you know, skyping, staying in contact with your loved ones, nearest and dearest. Mm. Um, as someone who's more in the public eye, possibly than you are, the total sure. the total um, lack of privacy now is very disturbing. Um, the The way that you constantly have to be aware now that there might be someone with a camera taking your picture somewhere, someone with a camera and a microphone recording what you say. Um, I mean, even at conventions, I, I used to be the one who said, you know, I will tell you anything you want to know about anybody else, right? <laughs> um, now I can't even do that because somebody is going to be recording and I have to edit myself because I don't want to get into trouble with the studios. I don't want to get into trouble with Hollywood. I'm not rich enough to retire. I still have to work to make a living. So I can't say any – I have to edit myself to make sure I don't say anything to piss people off because I need to make a, a paycheck. And so I'm feel, I feel like the fans that do adore me are kind of getting the, you know, the more um, clean-cut, edited version of the real Marina, well, which, is, which is a disservice for them. We're not recording this at all. So, so about that Rick Berman. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> See, that's the thing. You know, it's like um, I hate – I mean, I, I've always been – the one thing about me that ev anyone you ask is Marina always says what she thinks, always says what she means. I mean, if I like you, you know it, and if I don't like you, you know it. And I, I've, I've always been that way. But now I have to sugarcoat pretty much everything because I know that someone down there in the audience at the convention is going to record this and is going to post it online or on Twitter or on social media and the whole world is going to know about it and I'm going to get in deep. So, you know, it, I, think it's, I think it's changed things and spoiled things. So just forgive me, just so I'm clear, when I see you on stage in Vegas, that you that I'm seeing now is you holding back? <laughs> yeah, that right. is me holding wow. back, okay. actually. Yeah, I mean, 20 years ago, you would have got a much raunchier marina, actually. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, let me – forgive me. I, I, I actually want to – should – well, hmm. Should we start talking about Star Trek? You, yeah, any, any time. Hell, yeah, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. All right. I want to. I, I want to go back to. I guess even before uh, TNG, as far as you're concerned, were you a Star Trek fan? I mean, no. I mean obviously you had to have known about Star Trek because you were on the planet. But I mean, was well, it a background thing that, for you, or was well, it? That's like, it. You're on the planet. I was on the planet, so I knew about Star Trek because um, it was looking back now in hindsight, huge. I knew who Spock was, mm -hmm. I knew who Kirk was, I knew who Hura was. Um, I knew every character on the show. I had never seen an episode, which just goes to show how, how just legendary they all were. Um, 
I'm, to be honest, and this is where the hate's going to start coming in, I'm not a big sci-fi fan to this day. It's not my first choice of entertainment. Um, if you ask Brent Spiner what I like, he says, Marina likes movies where people die of an incurable disease. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, chick flicks. Chick flicks are my thing. Um, you know, Steel Magnolias is my favorite movie of the last 30 years. So uh, you can mock and scoff all you like, but that's what I like. I was figuring more Merchant Ivory kind Merchant, of stuff. Oh, yeah, I mean, just because I, no, no, I, absolutely, absolutely. Any anything anything done in English in period clothing, yes, that 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 works for me too. But I, I think this is okay. So besides besides incurable diseases, I'm, forgive me, John. I am so sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, my favorite movie, probably of the last thirty years as well, is um. Remains of the day, yes, and that's yes. not even an incurable disease, except for the guy's own, you know, the guy's own angst and the yeah. guy's own wow. Boy, did I screw up my whole life, and it's good to see that at the end. Weren't Emma and Anthony <laughs> just brilliant in that movie? You see, that's what I like. A movie. When, okay, people. so yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. When so I remember seeing it in the theater, and I remember he, so he's going up the stairs, right, and he mm-hmm. drops that bottle of wine, mm-hmm. and the whole theater jumped, right, and and I and I realized this is an amazing. This is amazing acting. This is amazing uh, directing. This is amazing everything. When that's, you know, probably in another theater down the hall, there was like three explosions going on and people were just eating their popcorn, not even thinking about it. There, there's, a, there's just absolutely something stunning about So I guess I like chick flicks too. There you go. <laughs> there you go. We have, we have something in common. You wear that proudly, Ken. I will not take that away from you at all. But I, I think that's the thing, though, that um, – there are Star Trek fans who feel like, well, you need to be a science fiction fan or you need to be a Star Trek fan, when really what it comes down to is, do you have great actors? Do you have great writers? Do you have a great director? You know, Nicholas Meyer, who arguably saved Star Trek, Harve Bennett, who helped him save mm-hmm. Star Trek. These were people, well, at least in Nick Meyer's case, who had no familiarity at all with Star Trek. Um, and then you take your cast, and, and you in particular, and I think Patrick Stewart, not a science fiction I would fan pretty coming much into say, the show. I would you know? pretty much say that it, it was me, Gates, Patrick were the three who really didn't know very much about Star Trek. I don't know mm-hmm. about Denise so much. I know for sure that Michael Dorn and LeVar Burton were huge Star Trek fans. Mm-hmm. Um, Jonathan and Brent, I don't know, probably not so much either. Well, and even at the same time, if you are a huge fan, you can't show up on set every day acting like a fan. No. And the (laughs) thing is, you know, what the fans have to remember is that it was a job. Mm -hmm. And I didn't become an actress just to be on Star Trek. And this is something that some of our fans forget sometimes is that – they love it, and, and listen, God bless them. They love it to death, and they, you know, they live and breathe it. And and I wouldn't be where I am today without them. But I still haven't seen every episode of TNG. I'm not. <laughs> I really, I'm sure I haven't. And don't even ask me what the names of the episodes were because they're gone. I'm postmenopausal now, and my brain has turned to mush. <laughs> but um, I, my passion is soccer so uh when you guys are watching star trek i'm watching soccer i have one (laughs) tattoo it's my soccer team on my shoulder so um, i'm a bit of a jock i like to watch i like to watch sports um when fans go all you know kind of crazy around me i totally get it because that's how i get around soccer players especially the ones that played for my team Um, but you don't have to love something to be good in it and I will see that tattoo before she leaves. <laughs> um, 
Can I, so uh, let me ask from the opposite end then. I mean, you were aware of Star Trek to the point that everybody, you, you knew who Spock was, you knew who Kirk was, you knew who Uhura was without ever having seen it. Was there any part of you that thought, do I want to be on another Star Trek? Because, I mean, yes, you've done other work, you continue to do other work, but this is what you've been recognized for and probably what you're going to be recognized for. Till the day I, I mean, die. going forward. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, no, not even a, not even a nano thought. As when I got the job, I was I did a little dance. I as I, I'm an actor who got offered a series. How is that mm. a good thing? You know, um, I was I was happy that we were guaranteed one year. Uh, if we'd only <laughs> done a year, that would have been the longest job I ever had on television. So there was no downside to being on star trek i mean and to be honest when we started shooting we were kind of shooting in a vacuum because we didn't know what the show was going to look like of course we were lowly unheard of actors so they didn't feel the need to show us dailies or anything um it wasn't until september of 87 when we were going to air for the first time and then we were descended upon by the press that i figured out wow the whole world is going to be watching this. And that's when I got nervous. So basically from June through till September, when we were just shooting the series, we were just happy-go-lucky, you know, bunch of kids shooting this great show. And then suddenly we all realized, holy cow, we're going to get reviewed by the world and his dog. And um, then I got nervous. That was when I got nervous. Um, when the show started, and famously, I think every fan knows that you auditioned for the character that then would become Tasha Yar, mm -hmm. and Denise auditioned right, for, for Troy. Troy. And in retrospect, it seems so completely and obviously wrong that it would have been yeah. cast that way. Yeah. And did you feel that at the audition? And then were you surprised at all when they you switched guys us. got switched? Um, we got switched three auditions in. I did six auditions, and I was—I think we were both switched three auditions in. And as I was leaving the trailer after my third audition, Corey Allen, the director, came running after me and said, come back, we want you to read for a different part. And they basically sat me in a room with Troy's. It was basically the same scene because the scenes were Tasha and Troy. Um, in retrospect, yes, uh, way better casting the way it turned out. Me as, me as Deanna and Tasha um, being Denise. However, I have to say that if I had been cast as Tasha, she would have been on the show for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay? I wouldn't have quit. So, uh, yeah. Troy would have been gone. The, the, the uh, starship wouldn't have had a counselor, but it would have had a security chief, well, a female I, security chief. Uh, okay, so did you two talk about this? Because uh, from the outside, I, I can look at that, and somebody who's been an actor, I can say, you know what, anybody who leaves a series with a steady paycheck is nuts. Right. But in doing this show and doing Mission Log and, and reviewing every single episode in detail – I look at it and I say, wow, Denise kind of got the short end of the stick. There was not a lot for her to do. And oh, that's rubbish. Did, I, no, I, I really don't yeah. agree with that. I got nothing in the first season. What are you talking about? <laughs> I was written out of episodes in the first season. Yeah. I remember Cliff Bowl, one of our directors, coming up to me and saying, you know, you've only got two lines in this episode, so I've told him to write you out. Wow. So Denise got a bunch of stuff in the first... <laughs> what are you talking about? You're talking well, out of your the, ass, the, the, honestly. The closer to her death, yeah, the closer she got to her... a lot to do. Well, <laughs> we, listen, we knew... Yeah. Denise was on the show for two minutes, 
and we knew mm-hmm. more about her history and more about her past than we ever knew about Deanna in seven years. So I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> we knew so that she true. had a horrible childhood. We knew she'd been yeah. abused, abused. We knew, she, you know, all this terrible stuff that she'd gone through. What did we know about Troy? We knew she worked out and she had a mother. <laughs> right. That was all right. we knew about Troy. Yeah. Well, and she had a background with... Well, and she had a thing with... Which they then ignored yeah. for seven years. Yeah, yeah. The only reason I ended up marrying, jo- marrying Riker in Nemesis was because Jonathan and I wouldn't let the relationship die. And we played the looks, yeah. which mostly ended up on the cutting room floor. But sometimes they couldn't cut them, the looks out. And they had to keep them in because they didn't have another choice. Right. So it was Jonathan and I that kept that relationship going. But as far as... Um, her not getting stuff to do. She had a shitload to do when she was on the show. So moral of the story, don't leave a show. Don't leave the show. Absolutely. <laughs> no. I, you know what? Two words, you know. Shelley Long. Ah, yeah. yeah. That's all I have to say. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Well, well, so end of season one, and Denise is gone. Right. And Gates is gone. Right. And you're the last female regular character standing. Yeah. What crosses through your mind either hey this is an opportunity there'll be more for me to do or i'd better watch my p's and q's because apparently you can just get rid of women actors on this show left and right well um rick will deny this until the cows come home we'll believe you but i got a call from majel august of 87 and she was doing a convention at the old Ambassador Hotel, the one that Bobby Kennedy was shot at. Mm-hmm. And she said, what are you doing today, Marina? It was a Saturday. What are you doing? And I said, nothing. She said, okay, get yourself down. Get yourself down here. I want to introduce you to the fans. So this was before we had ever aired. This was a month before we aired. And so I took myself down to the Ambassadors, and she introduced me to the fans, and they couldn't care less. They really were not excited to meet me at all. They were quite happy watching reruns of the original show, Ad Infinitum. Um, So she told me to wait for her at the bar. And so I did, and we had a drink, and she said, have you started doing conventions? I said, no. She said, okay, you need to start. And she hooked me up with some of the promoters and I got out I was the first person to do conventions on a regular basis so cut to a few years later and again I'm having a drink with Majel and I said Majel was I going to get fired and she said yes you were Jean came home one day and said we have one too many girls on the show And we're going to have to lose one. And unfortunately, we're going to have to lose. I don't want to say this is going to sound really vain, but I'm not quoting me now. I'm quoting Gene. But he Mm -hmm. said, you know, we're going to have to lose the best actress of the three. And that was why she called me on that Saturday. Listen, it wasn't just she loved me. Look, Majel and I had a wonderful relationship. Um, I called her mom until she'd passed. But. It wasn't totally altruistic, I'm sure. If I lost my job, she'd lost her job. She played my mother. Right. And that was the reason she told me to start doing conventions, because she knew I should start building up my fan base to give me some pat, some strength. Um, Denise quitting mm-hmm. saved my job. Mm-hmm. So I knew from the get-go that anyone was expendable on the show. 
Yeah. It didn't just have to be a woman. I just knew that, you know, women are more likely to go because it's still a boys' town in Hollywood. But, um, yeah, I never felt 100% secure in that job, probably for about three years. Did you think that things would change going into season two? You I knew, I knew they would change in. because okay. at, um, Jonathan and Jeannie got married in the first season hiatus. And at their wedding, Jean took me aside and said... You're going to love the first episode of the second season. And I said, why? He said, it's all about Troy. It's a big Troy episode. And it was the child. And I burst into tears. After having a year of total insecurity, for Jean to tell me that they were trusting me with a season opener was huge for me. Absolutely massive. So when we talked about the child on our show, Ken, I'm sure you remember well, that there were mm-hmm. themes that we really hammered, that we, we talked quite a bit about. And I came away from it saying, this is a way that Star Trek in 1988 could take on a topic like abortion. And instead of making it about abortion, they could make it about Deanna's decision. Well, they made it about choice. Exactly. They made it yeah. about choice, which is what our, you know, I'm a, I'm a raging feminist from the 60s and 70s. So um, we... It's not about abortion. It's about choice. It's about having the choice to do what you want. And the choice may be to have the baby. But it's a choice that you have to have. Right. So that's my opinion. Well, there's that great scene. There's that great scene in the conference room where you hear all the voices start to sort of fade to the background but the camera pushes on mm-hmm. Indiana. And at that moment, even if you're not listening to the words and even if you're not tuned into it, you get that the moment is about Deanna. Right. And it's not about anybody else's opinion. Now, we got a lot of feedback from our listeners saying what you did not talk about was rape. Right. And what you did not talk about is the fact that this alien being non-consensually inserted itself in Deanna to right. force this child upon her. And our listeners were right. Yeah. And we did, for whatever reason, we didn't talk about it because we were focused on Well, because on it, wasn't, it wasn't a quote-unquote normal type of rape. It wasn't yeah. violent. It, yeah. wasn't, um, yeah, it wasn't a violent rape, basically. Yeah. It was, and it wasn't, mm-hmm. we say the word penis, it wasn't a penis. You know, it was a little light. It was mm-hmm. a little alien being that inserted herself in it. So there wasn't that kind of horrific violence that happens in a rape so probably that was why um a lot of people didn't think of it in those terms did it ever come up no never came up interesting never came up interesting yeah that's the the only reason that i can think that we missed it is because it's never even once addressed and the it's never it's it's not even acknowledged that that's that that's a possible way to look at it in the episode yeah exactly um it, it was never yeah, it was never referred to as um, a violation. Um, right. I did episodes down the line where I was violated a um, couple of times, I think, once in the series and then once in Nemesis. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think because it wasn't a sexual rape that um, it didn't kind of occur to them that it was a rape. What are the best moments for you as an actor for Deanna, just looking at that. I mean, here you are, like you said, going into season two, wondering throughout the first season if you will even have a job to come back to. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you get a show that's all about your character. Mm -hmm. What are the other standout moments that make you think, oh, yeah, I really got it there. That's that's 
in the whole Gratefully. series. You yeah, mean? yeah, yeah. I think one of the, I think the child was a big, um, obviously a big turning point for my character. I think another huge turning point for my character. We had to kind of wait till season four or five when um, it was the episode Face of the Enemy, where I was um, a Romulan spy. And suddenly everyone realized that, wow, Deanna can maybe kick some butt. And that kind of changed. <laughs> um, and then another actually um, quite important episode I felt, and it sounds really strange to say this because it was basically a costume thing, was episode six in Chain of Command Part One, where Captain Jellicoe tells Deanna to go and put on a spacesuit. And lo and behold, she seems to have one in her closet, though she's never worn one for six years. Um, so uh, she goes and puts on a spacesuit and blow me. But if suddenly, you know, <laughs> she, that again changes her character. I, I always I make jokes at conventions and I say, you know, when when a woman in Hollywood has a cleavage, she cannot have a brain. Right. And that when Deanna got her cleavage, all her grey matter went south. <laughs> well, guess what? When she got her spacesuit back on, all her grey matter came back, and suddenly she was the expert in Romulan technology, for God's <laughs> sakes. So uh, um, there were certain things that happened that, yes, kind of catapulted my character a little further along the line to modernity. But um, listen, it sounds as if like I'm bitching. I'm not bitching at all. I'm just kind of pointing out things that happened um well this has been kind of a running gag though i mean for yeah, you and for yeah, the fans yeah. is that it's been about hair and space well no listen hollywood is know. all about the hair yeah for boys yeah. and girls yeah. we i mean i'm pretty sure we are responsible for the ozone layer or the hole in the ozone <laughs> layer because the amount of spray they used on all of us on tng boys included um was horrific God forbid your hair looks like hair. It's got to sit on your head like a football helmet, honestly. Come on, it's the 24th century. Nobody wants hair trouble. Well, you know, except... <laughs> you know, but these, like, there was never a hair out of place. I mean, everyone looked perfect, but then that's Hollywood. Everyone looks perfect. Everyone's got to look perfect. You do it and I do it in a heartbeat. You stick your head in a replicator in the exactly. morning. Exactly, that's how... And you well, say, and, I want that. And that's what I'm... That's what we did. We yeah. had replicators for, the, our hair, for our hairdos. There was a reason I shaved my head. That's it. Exactly what you're talking about. I don't have time for the product. I guess that's what it comes down to. I, I have to ask you a question since you brought up the dress versus the spacesuit. Was there ever a defined reason that you didn't have a uniform? Yes, there was, actually. It's because I was fat. Um, I basically, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry, I meant in the context of the show, but okay. No, I was, that's why I wasn't in the spacesuit when I got cast, because when I got the job, the phone call went, you got the job, lose five pounds. That was how I learned I'd got the job. Um, I probably, you know, I weigh probably now the same that I did back then. In Hollywood terms, I'm obese. In real terms... In the real world, world terms, I'm a normal-sized, slim woman. But in Hollywood terms, I'm a fatso. And I was, I was um, not the skinny, skinny, skinny kind of actress that they, you know, that normally is around. And um, I just didn't look good in, in, the, in the spacesuit, in the spandex. And so Jean uh, decided that um, I would have uh, other costumes. I would have, if I wasn't wearing a spacesuit, I would have a wardrobe and wear other clothes. Okay, in radio terms, I'm sitting across from a gorgeous woman, and that is crazy. <laughs> That's insane. But, yeah, it um, was. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, Hollywood is not about reality. 
really, is it? Yeah. Well, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. <laughs> so I, I have a, a question to ask you going back to um, – Going back to what we were talking about earlier, as far as yeah, you basically being the last woman standing in the original last cast. Last young woman standing, because we did get Diana Maldar in the second season, but she was a different generation to me. Well, and she also did, I mean, she came in, I mean, as far as, you know, remaining, oh, I would yeah. say. Because, yeah, you do get Diana Maldar, but you also get, you also get Whoopi Goldberg. Right. And I want to ask, because we think about Whoopi Goldberg today and she's on The View and, you know, she might be in movies occasionally, but she's not 87, 88. Whoopi Goldberg is able to make whatever movie she wants to witness burglar and jumping Jack flash and a bunch of other movies that maybe shouldn't have been made. And yet Whoopi Goldberg, one of the biggest stars in Hollywood at the time is like, Hey, I'm going to go beyond Star Trek. And she is. Yeah. How does that, I mean, obviously she's not a regular, but she is recurring. Do the dynamics on set change at all? Is there something – I mean, is it weird to suddenly have A-list celebrity on – I mean, not that you guys weren't big at that point because going stop, into second stop season digging was, the, Stop digging that hole. Well, stop come on. You know hole. what I mean? Oh, come <laughs> on. Digging that hole. Where could Whoopi Goldberg go and not be recognized at that time? Nowhere. But um, she was definitely A-list and we were kind of B-minus list at that time. Or well, it depends C-list on who you ask, but okay. C-list, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we were there with Kathy Griffin on so, the C-list. So, so what – well, basically, I, so what changes that? I think we were thrilled that someone like Whoopi wanted to be on our show. I was thrilled. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll talk for the rest of us. I'm pretty sure we were all thrilled. Um, what a great compliment that one of the biggest mm-hmm. stars in the world wants to be on our little TV show. Um, there were rumors back in the day that I was upset about this because um, basically when the scripts came out, they would say Troy slash Guinan above a speech <laughs> because when she came on the show, she basically got to do my lines because she was the she was giving people advice in the bar as opposed to me giving them advice in my office. That the, I was not upset at all. That couldn't be further from the truth. I was thrilled she was on the show. I was a huge fan of Whoopies. Um, still am a huge fan of Whoopies. Um, we might, you know, we tell stories on the show about how, you know, when you first get cast on a series, you look, you get really nervous when you, you know, when you're cut out of a scene or when you don't have a lot to say, you're looking through the script going, oh my goodness, I've only got three lines in this episode. Oh my gosh. By the second season, when you've been working 18 hour days for 10 months, you look through the script and you go, <laughs> oh, thank God, I've got three or four days <laughs> off this week. So it never, ever bothered me that Whoopi got to do my dialogue. I was thrilled I got to get some time off um, and got to lie in occasionally. It did nothing but bring validation to our show. It, it made people take us way more seriously than they ever had before. It made people look at us again and say, wow, if Whoopi Goldberg wants to be on this show, maybe we need to see what she's so excited about. So there was no downside at all to Whoopi being on the show. Um, plus, she's funny as hell. Um, had We always had a good laugh on the set. We never stopped laughing for seven years on TNG, and she fit right in because she was really funny, obviously. Actually, the only thing that I was upset with Guinan was the fact that she wasn't funnier. I thought Guy mm-hmm. was a little serious and we had Whoopi. Why the heck didn't we use her brilliant comedic talent every now and again? But maybe that was, a, I, mean, I don't know, I wasn't behind the scenes. And maybe that was a conversation that she had with Jean that she didn't want to be a comic character and she wanted to be more of a serious character. So um, I may be 
talking out of my elbow. But um, no, I, I thought it was absolutely brilliant that Whoopi wanted to be on our show. How about Dr. Pulaski? How about Diana coming in? Because that, it, just in the course of doing Mission Log, mm-hmm. we hear that sort of like reliving that going mm-hmm. into that season again, because when we switch gears from season one to season two, listeners write in, oh, I hate that character. I love that character. Mm-hmm. What, it was a mistake. It was brilliant. It, it, you know, what, what was the dynamic like for you all having this new character there? We all got along from day one like we'd known each other for 20 years. I I, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't meant. It was just serendipitous that mm-hmm. we all got along and still to this day get along. And so losing Gates was upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, Gates and I, after Denise left, and also actually when Denise was still on the show, because Denise was married and Gates and I weren't, weren't married. I used to hang out with Gates. We were like, you know, BFFs. And um, so when she left, I, I was quite upset because I'd lost my... my girlfriend you know my girl pal um however i remember walking back from the commissary on the first day with diana and i said no how are you enjoying your first day welcome to the show you know all those things and she said you know i'm only going to be here a year i said don't be ridiculous Hmm. and she said no i've got a feeling that i'm only going to be here a year and she either knew something that I didn't or she was psychic because she was only there for a year. And I don't know why that was. But she knew from the get-go that she wasn't going to last. For you as an actor, and it, here's the thing, I, I get this sense, and, and I always have from hearing you talk, that you're glad to have the job. Oh, man. You know, you, you're just you're glad to show up and you're having fun and it's about hitting the mark and saying the line mm-hmm. and... Not bumping into the furniture. Exactly, and and moving on to the next scene. But I'm curious, there are actors who very heavily lobby the writers or the producers and and always want more or different Mm -hmm. or what they perceive as better for their characters. Did you go that route at all? No, and I wish I had actually a little bit more. Um, I remember, you know, when I'd run into Ron Moore or Brannon and I'd say, come on, give Troy something to do. And they'd say, well, what do you want to do? And I go, well, I'm an actress. You're the writer. Think of something, you know. Um, big mistake. Big mistake. The people who actually, whose characters were developed much more than mine were the people who came up with stuff. Brent came up with stuff. Brent came up with the singing and the, and the violin playing. And obviously Gates came up with the dancing. Um, on Voyager, Bob Picardo came up with a lot of stuff that he wanted to do. And I've realized now, if, if I've learned anything from doing that series, is that the, the writers welcome input. They're working their asses off getting a show out a week. Um, they're pretty much correcting grammar and making scenes better. So having an actor give them something is actually very welcome. And I didn't realize that. And, you know, when I get my next series, I will that will change. I will make suggestions and I will be more involved in that side of things. Anything that you wish that Deanna could have done? I mean, you, you have the benefit of having stuck around through yeah. a lot of Star Trek history. Right. I wish we, I just wish we'd known more about her past. Mm-hmm. You know, I always say that, you know, Worf was an orphan and he had more relatives than the rest of us put together. <laughs> right? Yeah. We really, still to this day, we really... Deanna's still a, a bit of an enigma. We don't really know much about her. Yeah. Well, I brought that up on a show recently, that it seems like the Enterprise of Starfleet is full of 
orphans, mm-hmm. literal or figurative, yeah. that, that yeah. they sort of do the job and they're away for years and years and maybe you hear from family or maybe you don't. Yeah. yeah. I wish I, you know, we'd met people from my past or um, other relatives or, I mean, in Dark Page, you know, we found out I had a sister, mm-hmm. but um, that was really all. And uh, it would have been, it would have been, it, it would have behooved me to sit down and have a think and figure out some stuff. But we got to meet Deanna's mother and Deanna's mother come back a lot. And your friendship with Majel clearly had to have influenced and played a part in the relationship on the screen as well. Can you talk about how you got to know Jean and Majel and and what that friendship was like for you? Well, I actually um, listen. One of the one of the great things about not being a fan of Star Trek was that when confronted with Jean Wardenberry, I didn't pee in my pants, <laughs> which most Star Trek fans would do. So I do that every time I talk to Rod. Right. Yeah. So exactly. So the fact that I wasn't a Star Trek fan and didn't know what you know what a legend Gene Roddenberry was um, actually behooved me in, in you know in the long run. We shot Haven as the third episode. It didn't air as the third episode, but we shot it third. So I got to know Majel very soon into the series, and um, we were very alike in as much as the filter between our brains and our mouths doesn't work that well, didn't, you know, work that well most of the time. <laughs> um, she was outrageous, I'm outrageous. But, it, but, the, but the outrageousness covers a really soft heart, and she had a really good heart. And basically, I had been in the country for six months when I got cast, I didn't really have any friends here. My cast were my friends. They were, the, they were my family. And so the Roddenberries, God bless them, they, put, they made sure that come Christmas, come Thanksgiving, come Oscar night, I had somewhere to go. They adopted me. And um, so I probably had a different relationship with them than possibly any other actor because I, I did call her mom and I still call Rod bro. Um, and I remember when my own pa- my own mother passed away, I told Majel she had to live a long time because she was the only mom I had left. Um, and that didn't work out, unfortunately. But yeah, I, I kind of they were they were my um, surrogate mom and dad in America, and um, I feel very blessed to have had that relationship with them, to have known them on just the human level and not just as being my boss and the boss's wife, you know. Yeah. Which is interesting because we were very badly behaved. I'm crying, by the way. <laughs> I'm <laughs> sorry. actually sorry. I'm actually shedding a few tears here. Mm. But um, we, you know, we had a director in the first season, no names, who directed two episodes and then he refused to come back because we were too rowdy. Um, <laughs> when Majel was coming on the show, we re- we thought, oh my goodness, this is the boss's wife. We better behave ourselves. Ten minutes on the set, we realised she was wackier than the rest of us put together and she fit right in. So not, not, no need to worry about that. But the wonderful thing about when she was on the show was that Jean would we'd see Jean more. Jean would come down and sit on the set and just watch her adoringly acting. And so it was a twofer. We got her and we got him when she was on the show. I don't... <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm not going to insist that you come back when we make the transition from uh, the series to the movies. So I, I have to ask in case we don't get That's Mason, to talk to you again around that time. Yeah. Sorry about that. So 
seven years weekly show uh-huh. and then all of a sudden you guys are going to go to the big screen which is great yay we get to go to the big screen i personally had no clue about too soon well, i had no clue about you know how both things were done so i thought why don't they just make a movie in the summer and then we can have you know this thing week to week i mean right. what was the feeling so now you say too soon was too your soon. feeling then too soon as well absolutely okay absolutely too soon we could have done two more years easy i mean easy done two more years but it Listen, I'm gonna, this is where the hate's going to come because I'm going to tell you what I think happened. Um, I think they thought DS9 was going to be way more successful than it was. It got great numbers mm. for the pilot, huge numbers for the pilot, and then they just fell away. And I think they felt that we were, um, we were somehow diminishing DS9 by keeping TNG on the air and that if TNG left TV, then... DS9 would get the numbers that we had been getting because they would be the only TV show on. They were wrong. Simple as that. They were wrong. DS9 was never successful. Actually, no of the no of the Star Trek shows, any of them were as successful as TNG. It's still it's not the flagship show because really the original show was, but um mm. from the reboot, yes, we were definitely the, the show that got the numbers. I mean, I, th- I think um, I seem to remember that back in the day, we weren't in the, the Nielsen ratings because we were a syndicated show. Um, we were the number one syndicated drama, uh, but we would have been in the top 20 every week if we had been rated by Nielsen. So I think they just got it wrong. I just think they... I don't think they realized that our cast, it was about our cast. It was about our characters. It wasn't just that it was a Star Trek show and that the fans would watch anything with Star Trek in the title. Enterprise proved mm-hmm. that. Oh, sorry, was that my outside voice? Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, anyway, um, but it really was about the characters that we had created and, and still to this day, we're pretty much the most, apart from, again, the original cast, we are the most popular cast in fandom. So um, I just think they didn't appreciate what they had with TNG and they didn't, they didn't realize the reasons that we were as successful as we were. And they, um, they just made a big mistake. They could, have, they could have, you know, they could have kept us on for another couple of years and then we could have done movies and everyone would have made more money. Now, you mentioned mm-hmm. Enterprise. And you and Jonathan came back to Enterprise, but you were sort of segregated. You had your yeah. own scenes. Yeah. And were you aware that... They hated us. That, <laughs> <laughs> in a word. <laughs> they were pissed that we were there. Yeah. Um, not at the time, no. Bless them. They didn't... They didn't uh, I mean, we knew them all. We, you know, we know them all we, yeah, from yeah. the conventions and, and the circuit. But uh, no, it wasn't until the show actually aired that we, uh, we were reading some of the press that we realized that some of the... Uh, actors from Enterprise weren't exactly doing a little dance of joy that Jonathan and I were on the show. And you know what? I don't blame them. It was their final episode and um, it was basically a TNG episode because Jonathan and I were real and they were holograms. Yeah. So I think I might have been a bit piffed too, actually. What you just said, though, I think it, it ties to something else that in looking at Star Trek, we know and you know that, you know, for every episode, for every character... It's somebody's favorite, mm-hmm. 
And it's also somebody's least favorite. Right. No matter what it is. Yeah. There's somebody who loves it and there's somebody else I, who I, I can hates I can pretty it. much. There's one episode of the original. Actually, there's one episode of the original show and there's an episode of TNG that will is the, the exception to those, what you just said okay. makes right. the ahead. rule. Go ahead. Um, I can't remember what the title of the episode was in the original series, but it was the one with the flower people. Oh, The Way to Eden. Is that what it was called? Did they really think that that wasn't going to be out of date in six months? Really? It was horrible. Um, And then as far as our show, Code of Honor. Oh, the the. I mean, I just cringe just to think about that episode. It was so racist. There are some of our listeners who didn't quite see why it was perceived that as way. racist well here's the thing when, when we did a discussion we did a recap because every episode right. we do a recap and i very specifically left out how it was portrayed i just these are the plot points right i go to a planet people are like this the deal is this yeah. and tasha's got to fight to the death yeah except for the part where the, it wasn't the even the black right it, right Probably right, they're all black right. and they're he, carrying honestly, spears and like talking in goo goo gaga language. <laughs> when left that out, when we so so horrible. we we alternate who does we alternate who does the recap and John that week had the recap when and I was sitting John, here gritting my teeth, not even wanting to do the episode. No, you see, we, and we then he read it. Yeah, we pretend we never shot that episode. We really do. We we try. Yeah. To, we've tried to erase it from our our. Uh, memories uh, actually there's one more and that's angel one which mm. is totally sexist because there's this planet <laughs> there's this planet it's been run by women for eons and then suddenly right. okay okay the guys are dressed up in ballerina outfits but that's how they dress okay <laughs> and then Riker shows up and he makes one speech and they start considering changing their form of government I mean really if it had been that easy to get rid of a government, George Bush would have been out on his ear after about six minutes. So uh, well, if let's, not even go to, let's not even go there. If anyone's confronted by that much chest hair that they had never seen before, oh they, might, they might stop and have to consider what's so, going on. So, yeah, I think that there were some episodes that first season that are better glossed over, actually. What about the characters, though? I'm curious. You know, I, I feel like you, because we've had – we got a progression with Deanna, and Deanna got to do more and be more of a, of a force in the next generation later on. And because you as a person, you have been so active in conventions and so forthcoming in conventions that I would say that you became even more of a favorite toward the end of the run of Next Generation than starting out, because I still feel it was less for Deanna to do early on, for sure. But I'm curious, what kind of feedback did you get or were you aware of that that you felt was maybe unfair for Deanna? No, no, it wasn't unfair at all. I mean, I would get people come up to me at conventions for a second, sometimes even up to the third season, and they would say, we think Deanna's really boring, but we love Marina, so we're (laughs) going to be fans of yours. (laughs) Wow. So uh, it worked it, for me. It worked on both ways. I got the you know diehard Trekkies who were basically going to love me just because I was in a spacesuit, and then I got people who didn't like my character but met me and adored me. So I kind of I, I kind of covered all the bases there, and, and it worked out great. That's good. Yeah. So one of the things that we do on Mission Log is that we do try to pick apart. We say, okay, if these are if these are the messages that Star Trek is promoting. And then do those messages actually hold up? Are they legitimate? So I'm curious because you, you've got an interesting perspective here. As an actor who clearly has opinions about where Star Trek got it right and what got it wrong, you know, I'm curious what 
morals, meanings, message, ethics you see as being sort of the heart of Star Trek. But you also have this relationship with Gina Majel. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if they ever talked to you about kind of how they felt about Star Trek, why this was important. No, Gene and I, Gene and I never talked Star Trek out of the office. Um, I remember when I got cast, I, I took a meeting with him and I had done, you know, I had kind of tried to give Deanna history. And he basically said, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Um, he basically gave us carte blanche to create our own characters. They gave us the lines and then they said, you know, run with it, which was brilliant, which is what every actor wants to hear, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never, ever got to discuss the prime directive with him or anything like that or first contact or anything like that. So um, I, that's why I say I think I have a different relationship because ours was purely on a personal level mm-hmm. as people, not as boss and you know, employee. Yeah. What about you personally? So you, you go through seven years of Star mm-hmm. Trek plus movies plus mm-hmm. spin-off shows that you were a part of. I mean, at the end of the day, then what? Yeah, we, we know it's important because it's popular, mm-hmm. or it's popular because it's important mm-hmm. either way. But what are the important messages? What are the important sort of uh, 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 meanings that that you think that people are picking up from well, these shows? Well, it's interesting because I know Gene was an atheist, um, and this is makes sometimes I laugh when fans credit him with all kinds of religious paraphernalia. Oh, I do too. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> um, but it's interesting that. Um, Despite that, the the kind of core core issue of, of Star Trek is almost biblical because it's kind of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I'm not a hugely religious person. I do we did do religious instruction at school, so I probably know more about it than I would otherwise. But um, it pretty much is that golden rule. That's what Star Trek Star Trek see, to me is about you treat others as you would want to be treated. The Prime Directive is the same thing. You don't go messing with people's stuff. Um, it ties into what's happening, you know, what's happened in the world in the last 20 years. Um, George Bush should have maybe read up on the Prime Directive before he invaded Iraq. Uh, it's relevant to this day because it makes sense as far as humanism goes and um, kindness and justice and all those things that we strive for. And that was what Star Trek was about. It was about humanity and justice and equality and fairness and all the things that we want in a perfect world. But trying to get there, the people trying to get there were imperfect, but the situations was striving to perfection, but of course the people weren't perfect, which was why Star Trek is brilliant. Because we're striving to do something that is a challenge to all of us. And that's why it's relevant to this day, because we're all still struggling with what's right and wrong. What we actually do is, uh, so we're going through every episode of the original, I mean, I'm sorry, of Next Generation. And it's been a long time since I've watched a lot of them. I would, I would, I, I, I said during the interview that I wouldn't try to get you to come back in two or well, three years when we hit that. But well, I would love to talk back. to you again when we hit that. You, I'll, I'll be here. No, no worries. Okay. I'll be here. Should we right here? I mean, she's like literally ca- not leaving. In- Rod, I'm house. not leaving. Yeah. I'll, I'll be well, no, you need. I'll, you, you, 
I'll be here. You have other work to do. You, you probably should go for a while. Yeah, yeah. But maybe but if you I, come back and like, well, you know. I'll come back and talk about the movies. That's absolutely <laughs> fine. Yeah. As you've noticed, I, 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 I love talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Can I? So uh, there, I guess there was one other question okay. I should have asked. Do you have just an absolute, and forgive me if I missed it when we were talking, I have a favorite moment for Deanna. Right. I have my absolute favorite moment. Is the drunk is you scene in first drunk? Contact. Yes. How did you know that? Is that yours? Mine. Everybody's. Or is that just the one that everybody... No, everybody's is it really? favorite Deanna moment, including mine. And in fact, there's a story there because, um, you know, I had tried for years to inject some humor into Deanna. And um, mm-hmm. Jonathan would say, no, no, Mary, she's not funny. Deanna's not funny. Stop trying to be funny. <laughs> and in fact, actually, when we were shooting Fistful of Datas and I was the uh, mysterious stranger, Durango, the mysterious stranger, I was trying to blow smoke rings in the jail scene with Worf. And, and Michael Doran said to me, don't be funny. This is my episode. And so um, I was always really cut down when I tried to be funny. And uh, so when I actually got to be funny in First Contact, I asked Rick Berman why. Why after seven years and this is our second movie do I fun- su- suddenly get to be funny? And he replied, well, there's a line in the scene where you say you've been trying to keep his hands off you for the last 20 minutes. If one of the boys had said that, it would be a whole different movie. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, and then we'd have to go back and watch Metamorphosis again. Exactly. Sorry, that's exactly. a... Yeah, yeah. Um, so as sometimes happens on our show, even though Rod Roddenberry is not here in the room with us, he, he's always. I know us. he's listening. I know. Yeah, he's like, yeah. He's like, and and we we have technology that allows us to you know yeah. hear from him, see from him, and um, and he brings up an interesting point. He brings up an interesting point that uh, that so many teenage boys at the time yeah. had had this crush on Deanna. Yeah. And, uh, and not just ha- teenage boys. Well, not just the teenage boys. No, no. But but you have to have been aware was, of this. Oh, and yeah. Being kind of the the standout figure yeah. on Next Gen, and it was great. Yeah. <laughs> no, listen. I was a very ugly child, and um, I have the pictures to prove it. In fact, Michael, Dorn, I showed Michael Dawn a picture of my family once, and he and he knows my family, and he said, "Well, I recognize your mom, and I recognize your brother, and I recognize, you know, your dad." But who's the monkey? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Yeah, so I, I was a very ugly child. So if you'd have said to me when I was 13 years old, Marina, when you grow up, you're going to grow up to be a sex symbol, I would have said, are you high? Um, so when it happened, listen, I was thrilled. I was thrilled. I, I just could, I want, I couldn't have been happier that um, the ugly child turned into the, the little duckling turned into the swan. Mm-hmm.